Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines magazine podcast. I'm Surbhi Gupta and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events and personalities from around the world. India's press has had a long and proud history, which played a key role in its struggle for freedom from its British colonizers. Even today, its media landscape is as diverse and multifaceted as the country in which it operates. While journalists have always been at risk for speaking truth to power, over the last decade since the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party or the BJP came to power in 2014, observers have begun to warn of an alarming trend that is preventing journalists within India from being able to do their job properly and in some case is even putting their lives at risk. Earlier this week, Indian authorities ordered the Caravan magazine to take down a story on the alleged torture and murder of civilians in Jammu by the army. Last week, senior journalist Nikhil Vagle's car was attacked in Pune allegedly by workers from the BJP after Vagle criticized a senior BJP leader. A few weeks before, a French political reporter based in Delhi since 2001 received a formal notice from authorities to surrender her residence permit. Indian authorities are also prosecuting some of them under counterterrorism and sedition laws. When India fell to 161st place on the Press Freedom Index last year, the reason given was violence against journalists, the politically partisan media and the concentration of media ownership. Many TV news channels in India have turned into government mouthpieces and pressure is mounting on others to toe the line. There are only a few publications and journalists that are engaged in keeping the media and the government accountable. I sat down recently with two of these journalists, Manisha Pandey and Samar Halankar, who joined me from Delhi and Bangalore respectively. Manisha is the managing editor at News Laundry, a media watchdog in India. She also hosts and writes TV Newsense, a satirical show that looks at TV news in India. Summer is a veteran journalist and editor who recently founded Article 14, an independent news publication in, in India which has published some groundbreaking reporting from the country. Great. So, thank you for being here Summer and Manisha. I think I think so I would like to start the conversation uh, by asking so there've been multiple reports in the recent past you know we've seen about how threats against uh, journalists in India have been increasing that India ranks 161 out of the 180 countries on the media freedom index and how the space to do like independent and critical journalism is decreasing so you know could you tell me more about uh, what are the kind of challenges that are being faced by uh, you know journalists in india and where are these threats usually coming from the first thing that i think which is very glaring about the indian media landscape right now is that there's a very complete and near total capture of mainstream voices especially the loudest voices the most prominent voices and voices that are heard the most which is television news so if you switch on television news in india today uh it's pretty much you know same propaganda across channels so there's an absolute and total capture of mainstream television news channels hindi and english these are most read uh, these are most viewed uh, they have the maximum impact so not many people may tune into english news but it has a lot of impact when it comes to policy narrative and of course then you have hindi news which is consumed by a large section of uh, indians and it is not an exaggeration to say that when you turn on the television today it's very close to what you see in um, non democracies like russia or you know we have we joke that it's you know north korean level sometimes the kind of praises that you'll hear about the prime minister um, you know the kind of feats that you're told uh, you know he's achieving day in and day out without much data and so you have that and you have uh, mainstream newspapers that are operating in considerable constraints a because much of news in india much of media in india is dependent on government advertising that is really the core of where they're making their money from this corporate advertising but government advertising you know has is a large chunk of how they're making their revenues so you have had examples of say for the hindu which is an english language paper does a story on rafal 
which is a story on a series of if not corruption but opacity around the deal questions around the deal the hindu had that prominently and you know they had their ads cut off we know anecdotally of how uh, your ads can just be snapped like this if there's an you know there isn't a favorable coverage in a particular newspaper and then you have digital news ecosystem which is small it's nimble i think most organizations you know are still small when you compare them to big television or news organizations and you had a series of uh, government action on a lot of the digital independent news organizations that aren't necessarily dependent on advertising so a lot of them can be freer in their coverage a lot of them are subscription based some take donations some are not profit but allows them a certain degree of freedom in which uh, in how they question the government report on the government or even analysis and critique and those uh, entities have come under pressure through direct government action you've had raids so for example news laundry has had something called the income tax surveys can't call them raids but they are surveys you have notices every day that come in and you have to respond to them everything may be by the book but you can just be you know caught in this whole paperwork and this legal work that you get embroiled in you've had very recently news click whose uh, owner founder has been jailed under terrorism charges uh, he's currently in jail and then of course you have firs multiple firs that organizations have to tackle uh, this could be for a report they did this could be because somebody was offended by what they've said you know hurting religious sentiments or stuff like that and i think almost every digital news organization has a couple of firs from a couple of states filed against their reporters in their fighting so that is really the um, landscape that we're talking about um i think for you know of course there have been a there's been cases like gauri lankesh uh but to me i think the big issue is not a threat a real physical threat say being a journalist in afghanistan i think is very different and there's no comparison it's just way more difficult way more of a threat to you physically than being in india but the big problems here are this kind of a silent censorship that's creeping in upon everyone and there's a silent sort of a message that goes around that if you do a certain thing it's going to have repercussions with your business or your very existence of you know, being able to do something somewhere do you want to add anything yeah i just want to say that in more than 30 i think 34 years now that i've been a journalist i have never felt as acutely a sense of threat uh, as um, I, i do today um there are a lot of uh, colleagues and friends who are facing as manisha said criminal cases of course but more than that who have been locked up um on the flimsiest of uh, charges on non-existent charges um and um uh, it doesn't really matter what those charges are because the the fact is in india uh, the judicial process is the punishment so many of them are first interned and then uh, the uh, the trial unfolds and the trial may take years so there are lots of people who are uh, who are facing that um, many of those who have come out of course uh, have uh, uh, have have come out after courts have said there are there isn't a crime here at all uh, and yet they were locked up for 2 years 3 years etc um now we're more so uh, than in jammu and kashmir uh, elsewhere of course uh, of course but i think all of these uh, these tactics to intimidate the media have been tried first in jammu and kashmir and then taken to the rest of uh, india uh, it's reached a stage now where i think all of us uh, are uh, very aware that uh, there could be a knock on the door uh, on our doors um uh, I, i at at article 14 where i where i work uh, i think we're just lucky that we haven't well i'll say yet had any government action uh, but um, everyone most other independent media of any consequence have faced some kind of government action or the other action that is more well suited to uh, an autocracy rather than the mother of democracy which is what our prime minister often describes us um i just want to say that you know uh, this uh, uh, there is a big gulf between public perception of uh, uh, how the media exist in india and the reality i'll just give an example i was at a, a dinner a couple of weeks ago when, a, when i met a college friend after many years and he asked what i was doing and you know how it was going i gave the usual spiel of what we know and what we perceive of a profession under threat and how there was you know little future unless you were allied with the government so he appeared very doubtful he said wasn't it always like that 
So I just stared at him. I said, maybe he's one of those fanatic government supporters. So I gave a further spiel about how, um, you know, uh, no one ever went to jail for mocking Manmohan Singh, the previous prime minister. And uh, he appeared convinced. He said, but tell me, you know, were Priyanka and Rahul Gandhi not compromising our security by talking to China? He was referring to some random, um, uh, you know, WhatsApp forwards that had been put out by government supporters and the government. Uh, um, and uh, what that indicated was that the power of WhatsApp and fake news is immense. Um, you know, it squirrels itself into uh, the mind's recesses and magically emerges whenever faced with uh, logic and fact. So, I, you know, I explained to him, I'm just taking this one example because, you know, the Chinese have made substantial inroads into Indian territory uh, over the last uh, few years and have kind of salami sliced about nearly 2,000 kilo square kilometers of territory. So I told him how that had happened, how we had lost territory, and the prime minister had blatantly said that no such thing had happened, which is now turns out to be, well, patently a lie. So his eyes widened and he said, no one explained it like this to me before. The media never reports things like this. So that is the kind of, um, um, that is in general the kind of approach that many people have towards the uh, mass media. They choose to believe what they want to believe. Uh, and the more educated are the more are more misinformed than those who are not as educated, which makes it even more troubling. And um, I'm, of course, um, stared at this friend of mine because I was caught off guard by his uh, naivete. And soon I was fielding questions from, you know, somebody else listening in about what's the real story here and what's the real story there. And I was talking to very well-educated people, but their cluelessness about current events was apparent. They did not display strong biases and were open to debate, but they were clearly, you know, subsumed by this fog of misinformation uh, around them. I think it's a very interesting point that someone has brought up. And I just want to underscore this because, like I said, there's a mainstream media capture of television news channels. And for an audience in America, it's the best way to explain these channels is as a Fox News, but on acid. And we have five or six of them, not one. And when there's government action against independent journalists, say the News Click case, or when the BBC was raided by the Indian government, these channels celebrated it and said it's great that these guys need to be taught a lesson. Like Samar gives the example of a friend asking, you know, that wouldn't they compromise the security with regard to China? This is the narrative that you're watching every day on television news channels. It's pretty much the voice of the government in India. I don't make a distinction. And they'll say that these Chinese agents have been put in place. NYT is routinely abused as this foreign menacing hand that is trying to destabilize India. BBC must be put in their position. You know, Washington Post journalists should be taught a lesson. So there's an active kind of uh, frenzy being whipped up every day on primetime debates in India, which is, I mean, it's peculiar because it's anti-journalism. The conversation is, how do we teach these guys a lesson? You know, they should be put in jail. They should be taught a lesson. These are anti-nationals. These are terrorists. They're anti-India. They're destabilizing us. So so, you know, I, I sometimes don't blame people for the way they think because that's just what they're watching. So if you could tell me more, like, you know, tell us more about uh, what is the state of uh, TV news and new shows in India? Like, what are the kind of things they talk about? Like a little bit more to, so so that we could get a sense. So, look, hyper-partisanship has always been a problem in Indian television news. It's the model because talk sells. There's very little focus on reporting. It works when at 19 you have a foreign against. So that's not new. Uh, partisanship, sorry, not hyper-partisanship. Partisanship hasn't always been normal. But what we've seen since 2014 is uh, hyper-partisanship. And the show that I started, you know, it, the idea to it came to us around 2016 because up till then we had been critiquing the media. You had sensationalism, trial by media. You'd have the standard, you know, who's an anti-national, who is a nationalist, stand up for the national anthem, you know, kind of stuff happening. But I think 2016, there was a marked shift where anchors started asking for the jailing and of activists or voices or dissenters that weren't in line with the current government. So you have very actively anti-people media. And, you know, we'd been writing about it and I thought, okay, we have to have a response which is in their language. So, you know, doing a video show taking it head on, using satire, because I think you can get through to a lot of people if you use satire and humor rather than preach, you know, be in this preachy mode all the time. So what we've seen at least in the last four years, 2016 onwards, is that it there is it's not just about being pro-government or pro-prime minister movie. 
It is actively anti-people. So if there's a protest, there are questions asked, a regular protest of women, you know, Muslim women sitting, doing a peaceful protest on a citizenship law that was supposed to be coming. You know, that kind of a protest would be dubbed anti-national on the payrolls of Pakistan, you know, a link from the Pakistan, or are they planning some terror, you know, attack? We had the farmers protest. Again, the same thing. You have a frenzy in the media questioning them. that, And not just questioning them, but saying that they have terrorist links. And due to such, you've also had instances where you've had activists jailed after television news has whipped up a frenzy of calling them anti-nationals, Maoists, Naxals, extremists, you know, left-wing extremists. You've had uh, people slapped with terror charges. In fact, one of the young activist who's been in jail now for almost three years, a Muslim guy, Umar Khalid, the, you know, he calls for a peaceful protest and he gets slapped with terror charges. But the frenzy around that case is whipped up on television news, labeling him a terrorist again and again, to such a point that today, if you go and talk to regular people on the street, they, they will be convinced that there's something wrong with this guy. He's, you know, he's probably on the payrolls of Pakistan or he's a terrorist. So you've had a anti-people media very clearly asking for jailing of people, slapping them with terror charges. And you've had a very real impact of that where you've seen people being tried on terror charges. And uh, a, a real kind of hate for minorities, which I think sometimes even the principal party in power would shy away from, the kind of things that anchors can sometimes say. So every day you're, you're being told how... Uh, you know, your life is in danger. The majority population, Hindus, are in danger because Muslims are out to, you know, marry your women or they'll spit on your food. We actually had a primetime show which spoke of a conspiracy that Muslims are somehow spitting on food, you know, Muslim vendors. So attacking businesses. A Muslim, you know, restaurant owner is suspect because he may be, you know, spitting on food. I mean, it's atrocious to even say that, but this is primetime news that people are consuming. All kinds of jihad, you know, love jihad, which is that Muslims are out to woo Hindu women, you know, and fool them and marry them. Uh, land jihad, that they're out to grab your land. Food, like I said, you know. So every day you're being told how the Muslim is out to get you. And there's some or the other jihad being waged against the majority population. And often these are, there's like zero evidence to any of this. There's not even a case, a criminal case that can support you know, most of these conspiracy theories. But uh, what do you think is the motivation for them to do so? Like to say such things and have such content on their TV channels? Is it because it's it's selling, there is demand for it? No, I would only like to say that um, um, there is a, uh, this is all part of what I would call a great, a slow, great process of de-democratization in India. Uh, and it's not limited only to the media. And obviously what's happening to the media is the indication of the de-democratization. Uh, and this de-democratization has been aided and approved by vast swaths of the media, as uh, Manisha said, the opposition, the administration, and the Indian people themselves, really, in, uh, in accepting all this. Um, some of this um, um, began some time ago, including under successive Congress governments who deliberately allowed... Uh, India's democracy to be clouded by the continuation and deployment of uh, many laws, old and new, that essentially were meant uh, not to be used in a democracy, but by a ruler against the rule. So there was no complaint and no significant complaint and certainly not enough media coverage when, you know, um, thousands have suffered under wrongful use of vaguely worded laws against terrorism, for criminal defamation, uh, the misuse of information technology and sedition. Um, and sedition, for example, has been used freely over the years against sloganeering students, villagers, protesting power plants, cartoonists, all kinds of uh, people. Thousands this has been used against. Um, and there hasn't been enough coverage or complaint when, you know, thousands have been put in jail without trial. Kashmiri rioters, tribals who happen to get in the way of security sleeps, wrongly accused terror suspects, mostly Muslims and human rights workers. There was no complaint uh, about police and torture methods that alienated many more than they convicted, about courts gradually that were gradually corrupted and compromised, and about media increasingly beholden to power instead of questioning it. Now, what has happened, I think, is that the advent of social media has greatly accelerated the process of the progression of de-democratization. Um, uh, Narendra Modi and his, you know, uh, Hindutva hordes 
uh, have weaponized uh, these media. And they've successfully urged millions of uh, Indians to, uh, I would say, embrace their dark side. Uh, so many people are self-radicalized, believing every bit of this fake news that you know Manisha referred to. Uh, and that turns them against their neighbors and friends. Um, and in doing so, I'm afraid they confirm that a large part of this country is willing to be led away from uh, you know, uh, justice and democracy and into this growing uncharted um, uh, darkness. Um, and and back, I'm just trying to give you a, a larger perspective of what I think uh, is uh, happening um, to Indian uh, media and, the dem and democracy in general. Yes, I mean, why, why does it sell to your question? I think, I mean, there's just two things that I can think of. One is that, look, you've, there's a very clear understanding that certain sort of behavior as a journalist will give you access, will give you prominence, and will help you rise in your career. Today, if you're in a mainstream news television organization, you do an investigative story on the number of jobs promised versus what's really happened on the ground, you may lose your job or you may be fired, or that story may be killed. But if you are a primetime anchor that can whip up a Hindu versus Muslim debate every night, you may get an interview with the Prime Minister. Modi, Mr. Modi has not given a press conference you know, in India for the past 10 years. He does not like to take questions from the press, which is quite, quite alarming. Uh, but he does give one-on-one -on -one interviews. And if you look at the choice of journalists that he speaks to one-on-one, -on -one, these are the same guys that every day, you know, do Hindu-Muslim, uh, you know, suck up to the government, peddle the kind of hate stories that I spoke about, love jihad, land jihad, stuff like that. So there's a clear understanding that you can rise up in today's ecosystem by doing news, uh, which is hyper-nationalist and, you know, Hindutva on steroids, basically. Um, so I think, th I mean, that's just, it's just a clear path to glory in Indian television space, you know, if you if you do that kind of news. Although there's been some surveys, uh, the CSDS comes out with routine surveys and the Indian people actually seem to be more, you know, I mean, more discerning when it comes to what they've been uh, consuming. Because I remember reading a data set that said that even the BJP supporters felt that the news was too pro-Modi. So there's some understanding even among news consumers that, okay, what we're watching is at least some. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, we don't have robust data, but I think even people get that, you know, some of it is just, just hyper-nationalist propaganda. Right. And there were also laws uh, that were introduced recently, right, which could have helped the government censor news content online and like, I think, make internet shutdown easier. So if you could tell uh, us more about that, like how has that impacted workings of like in at your own organizations or elsewhere? How is, you know, what are these new laws and how have they impacted? There are three or four laws that the government has. Uh, one of them was passed by parliament in a parliament which had kicked out 95 of its MPs and went ahead and passed it immediately, which was, I think, the telecommun new telecommunications bill. But um, uh, if you look at these laws, um, uh, what they do essentially is that they give the government power to, uh, uh, they're very vague and they're very broad. And they give the power, government power to selectively censor any kind of news content, uh, shut down the internet anytime they want, intercept personal and other communications. Everyone from YouTubers to um, individual journalists to columnists, anyone can be shut down and, and offline. And, they're being see and we're seeing that happen, in fact, more and more. Uh, there was a um, there was a television channel in in Maharashtra which had um, run a, uh, I think a, 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 a sex tape or something on uh, um, uh, a local BJP uh, member uh, who was known for uh, his exposes of other politicians uh, and when they ran that uh, in a very little time uh, the government tried to shut them down they went to the courts the court said. There is no case to shut them down and it's reinstated them. But now, only a few couple of days ago, the government uh, has shut them down uh, on the vague, very vague premise that their uh, you know, licensing was not in order or something to that effect. Uh, so these, uh, along with the fact that there is no viable business model, uh, you also have this whole problem of these laws that are now have been uh, deployed to shut down all the pesky little independent media that exist. 
so if if as and when these uh, as and when these are actually um, these come to fruition and they become laws uh, then the government uh, literally if it wants to it can uh, do anything that they can all of us can be shut down but the only thing is today like i don't think you i mean if you even look at don't look at the new laws or whatever but every case that has been mounted against say journalists or activists also anti government activists you'd see a clear like for example one journalist who was on his way to report on a rape that had happened in uttar pradesh uh you know and he was put in jail for 800 days almost he was behind bars and the case was a terror charge and if you read the charge sheet it's it's just a thought crime you know that he was on his way to create some sort of a trouble so what i'm saying is actually you don't even need laws anymore you've had in, enough instances now where you can put someone behind bars on terror charges and once you have a terror charge captain you you'll be behind bars for 3 years minimum 2 years and the crime is often that they are trying to destabilize india they're trying to you know create some sort of a mayhem really colonial era you know sedition kind of laws that the british used on indians those still exist and that's being weaponized right 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 but um, also going back to tv that we were talking about uh, i was thinking about there's been an exodus of journalists anchors also from tv to youtube now so but do you think like that is an alt- sustainable alternative uh, let's not forget that it's not just anchors that make a television news channel or, or or a news entity it's often reporters who do ground work and if they don't find the space to do what they want to do which is just ground reporting basic you know one on one fact gathering it's they can't just start a youtube channel and start doing you know journalism on youtube because they have to pay bills you need salaries you need infrastructure so i don't think youtube is a response to shrinking space in mainstream media i mean it's at least not a healthy one of course a lot of journalists have moved on anchors have moved on and they're doing great job but that's really i don't think that can really counter the sheer size at which mainstream media operates and reporting you know like what does a reporter do when you join an organization and that is one of the reasons why we are seeing such a creeping sort of self censorship because we've always had business interests we've always had businessmen own media or we've had media men have business interests because of which they always have to be in the good books of the government so adani is one case but it's it's really we've always had that and before adani there were you know other business entities that kind of had interest in entity so it's i think business interests have always been an issue right but it also put like spotlight on like our uh, business and revenue models in the media are there any alternatives to that or uh, to you know like revenue sources or business models no business model i think has really succeeded um, as far as the independent media goes there are a lot of uh, really good efforts um anisha's news laundry being one of them and uh, there are a few others as well um but i don't but none of them as she said can match the size and heft of the mainstream media they are literally very minuscule compared to uh, the giants that exist in television and the print media uh, and uh, and and the online media um they they have vast resources um um millions and billions of dollars from uh, advertising and revenues but uh, none of those revenues are actually uh, deployed towards the kind doing the kind of journalism that they should be doing um as far as business models go i think we are all struggling to figure out what business model works but i think uh, uh, no one has really cracked that and i don't think it's going to be anytime soon so we've been news on has been around since 2012 and we've been very clear that what we want to do is have a completely subscription reader driven enterprise we've managed to survive so long completely through subscriptions without any government or corporate advertising and because we're very clear that if news is going to be heavily dependent on governments and corporations we are going to go down that road of having to side with someone or the other at some point it's very difficult to stay independent uh so we've managed to do that uh, completely subscription driven however we're small we're a small team you know uh, we don't need to have that big you know newspaper team 
small but impactful nonetheless we've been able to cover a lot of things do ground reportage thanks to the kind of subscription that we've managed to garner over the past few years and also a lot of literacy media literacy that we engage in telling people because paying for news is very new in india people don't get why you should do that so we've also invested a lot of time explaining to people why it's important for them to take the control back in their hand you know if you don't want news that serves governments or corporations then and you want news to serve you then you have to pay a little bit for it because journalism is expensive it's not a cheap thing to do uh but so you know from the subscription point of view i'm very optimistic i think a lot of people are recognizing why it's important to pay for news i think sheer volumes in india means that we don't have to have very expensive subscriptions but if we can reach to enough people you can have a sustainable operation which we've managed to do uh, where the issues come in is that and i'm now i'm talking about everyone that look if you're even a digital news organization you want investors coming in today you're in that space where you know even if people believe in you and support you i'm talking about businesses investors they may not necessarily want to be seen around you because you're seen as anti government and that is one huge issue that a lot of people in digital news organizations have had to face that privately we support you we really like your work but we don't want to be on your cap table we don't want to be seen around you because that could mean government action on my business because i'm supporting you who's supposed to be anti government and that's a lot of load that's a lot of pressure for digital organizations you know simply in terms of how do you raise money how do you you know get investors on board and that is unfortunate that is the sad reality and you see that you know in multiple conversations that you'll have with people in the business especially in digital media this is huge concern and of course with mainstream it's clear that you go with where the wind is blowing and that's how you ensure the money keeps coming in but since you both run independent uh, you know news organizations is there like a safety hygiene that you follow things you things to keep in mind given the challenges you know one of our previous uh, founders used to joke that <laughs> that you're only out of jail because no one wants you in jail so in india the laws are such that if they want to put you behind the bars for something no matter how safe or whatever you do there'll be some loophole or something or the other they can like i said they've been journalists in jail for 800 days for a thought crime for apparently wanting to go somewhere to create terror that's that's that was literally why he was in jail for 800 days so there's some level of you know of course uh, because we're dealing with sources we're a journalistic organization we do the usual of you know clearing up uh, using safe apps and stuff like that um, but beyond that i mean no not there's i don't know how you can really be safe in this environment because literally anything can be used against you so you don't want to end up being too paranoid also that you're just constantly worried about you know what's going to happen to you so you, you won't be able to do your job if you're too worried but the basics of course using a safe you know channel to communicate with your sources uh, stuff like that and having good accounts making sure your accounts are <laughs> well taken care of <laughs> well we spend a lot of uh, our uh, limited resources on having a very good uh, chartered accountant and and as as manisha said if they won't have to come after you they will but if this goes to a court of law then it, they should not be uh, legal uh, legal trouble that you should get into so you know our, our accounts are as clean as they can be they're audited um uh, our, our chartered accountant is very very particular for example we don't even take grants we cannot we, he doesn't allow us to even take grants from uh, anyone that's yeah strict compliance uh, in, uh, in, in with the laws of uh, uh, of the land and we just make sure we don't violate them again to reemphasize none of this means that they cannot come after you if they want to they will uh but really beyond a point you just have to do what you are doing and keep doing it because uh, uh, otherwise uh, you shouldn't be in this business you should just best that you uh get out of here and many have done that and i can't say that the thought has not crossed my mind uh, where i say that you know would it not be um easier to just retire at this point of time i always think that my father at this age he was a, a government servant a police officer actually and uh, this was the age for him to retire so i if i was a government servant i would have retired by now and i wonder sometimes perhaps it would, would it not have been easier to simply uh, retire but no it's not what we want to do 
not that we also don't want you to <laughs> go but uh, moving on i was also thinking about um, international reporting i think the space for that also in india i see is kind of decreasing also because i think bbc uh, the, the the raids or the surveys happened in their offices too after the documentary i think in general i think international reporters are also being very careful uh, you know we spoke about how the nyt is uh, occasionally bashed um, and is called anti india so but in general like what is your sense about uh, international reporting that's happening on india like is it covering the gaps or uh, is it not doing a good job bbc is pretty much an indian operation i mean they cover in languages uh, they do a lot of ground reporting so it's not like an nyt where they a reporter is stationed here and look the constraints with being an nyt or washington post reporter in india is that you're constantly writing for an audience that doesn't really know india or need not care about india on a daily basis so you know a lot of the reporting has to be superfluous uh, not many of the big things that we think big will not make it to you know nyt or post so again like i said it's not a you can't rely on foreign media because your own home media is not doing a good job having said that i think washington post of late to my mind at least has been doing some stellar investigative reporting that really mainstream news should be doing on troll armies that have links to the current government on pressures on you know uh, filmmakers and movie makers in bombay as uh, censorship that's creeping in because of the current government a uh, pegasus you know the spyware being planted so i think they're doing an interesting yeah i mean you could say that they're picking up things that mainstream indian news is not picking up but it's not enough of course <laughs> so that was a good example uh, the washington post of uh, the kind of uh, reporting on india that the foreign media should be doing there is uh, another example of course of uh, people who could be doing much more and simply will not do it uh, for example the economist Uh, who largely has bought into uh, the government view of how the um, the country uh, society and politics is unfolding criticism is completely mild and in fact i have read quite a few of uh, quite a lot of the recent uh, uh, coverage they've done a cover story on india in, indeed where there was only a mildly a reference to uh, this um, democratic downturn uh, in india um, and uh, i know for a fact uh, for many uh, for some and uh, i won't say many but for some that i know uh, foreign media uh, this is also a question of access that they they feel the pressure as much as we do perhaps less of course but there is a question of access because the moment they are watched and monitored now so the moment they write something that is overly critical they know that they are going to be um, well you know not harassed like we are but certainly um, uh, you know they uh, um, they find their their questions asked from them of the of the government officers them whom they have to deal with etc uh, and i've heard this from the correspondents themselves so they feel that pressure uh, as well um uh, and given that there are some media definitely who uh, are a little anxious to tone down uh, critical coverage of the government um primarily because that uh, so that they can get uh, and continue to have access to government because this government is very clear that if you do not if you are overly critical etc we will simply cut off access to you the another thing to think about is that uh, the india us relationships have been very close over the last two years at least so i think even with foreign correspondents uh, who are stationed in different countries i wonder if it's tricky for them also because i think there's a very clear direction that the us government is taking with how it wants to deal with modi how it wants to deal with india and i wonder if that you know kind of has pressures on journalists in india reporting on india it tends to i think it certainly tends to have that pressure i think it certainly from you know the few that i know it certainly tends to have that pressure because whether you like it or not and however democratic uh, uh, and free the western media have been the fact is they have always uh, uh, in 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 large in in large measure Uh, aligned with the national interests of those governments we have seen that we have seen that from the times of the iraq war we are seeing that now in stark measure when it comes to what's happening in gaza etc um so whether consciously or unconsciously 
there definitely has been uh, an aligning with a national interest. And the fact that India has become a, a counterweight to, um, uh, you know, China or is regarded as such, um, certainly see, tends to uh, make its way into, uh, you know, some of the coverage uh, that I've seen. Uh, and I have to tell you that uh, whenever I'm, I often sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I'm asked to come and talk to some foreign envoys, etc. And whenever I talk to them, I tell them now that I really don't know what the point is of talking to you because you may agree with me and you may say, yes, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, um, uh, snicker over it and say, yeah, things are really bad in India, etc. But your governments are still going to, uh, you know, sell us arms do business with us, etc., because that is where your uh, interests lie. And that is fine. National interest is, uh, you know, paramount to diplomats, etc. But if journalists, uh, you know, start uh, unconsciously or uh, consciously uh, aligning themselves with their uh, country's interests, then that is a problem. And I think we are seeing that specifically in some measure, at least. And there are, and I have to say, there are honorable exceptions. There are quite a few honorable exceptions. And as Manisha said, the Washington Post is a very good exception. Uh, but... Um, uh, they have. Uh, uh, they also find it very difficult, I think, to uh, bear the kind of uh, pressure that uh, they feel. Right. Um, but uh, what do you think are the kind of, say, events or people or issues that are just not getting covered, uh, you know, in the country and they should be? Well, there's plenty. I mean, yeah, of course. One is that the sole agenda every day is to kind of run down the opposition um, in a very systematic way. So that is one kind of debate. But you look at large events like Manipur, a state which has been embroiled in ethnic violence since May uh, last year. You had so many people dead. A state completely divided along ethnic lines. Just yesterday, I think four people were killed again. So a state in constant turmoil does not, that news did not make it to prime time. May have been a ticker, but it was not prime time news. Or, um, yeah, so, so uh, you know, when you had uh, some of the top uh, wrestling champions in India protest against <clears throat> the chief of the wrestling federation for sexual harassment, and this person is very important to the current government, you had that news ignored for quite a bit till it became difficult for them to do that. And then when the news was picked up, it was questioning the wrestlers that why are they protesting? Whose you know payrolls are they on? Is it a political protest and stuff like that? There are lots of things that the government uh, that the media do not pick up at all. I mean, I don't know where to begin. But I think one of the uh, one of the most obvious things, whether now the Indian media or the foreign media, of, uh, that's happening in India, is the complete collapse of any kind of uh, rule of law uh, in a place like Jammu and Kashmir, where um, we know that journalism has completely fallen apart. Um, we have had, we carry a lot of stories from uh, Kashmir. Um, but um, uh, over the last three years, uh, the reporters who have been reporting for us gradually have disappeared because they've all faced either criminal cases or they faced harassing raids. You know, they're random raids in the middle of the night to shake up their house, thrash their house, etc. Um, even for stories that would have been routine, uh, for example, we have reporters who are saying, please don't run our bylines. Or, uh, you know, we will write the story, but don't run our bylines. There's been endless harassment. There have been arrests that have been prevented. Many have been detained under uh, preventive detention laws. Um, uh, and that has completely what is happening in Jammu and Kashmir, where at this point of time, uh, there are uh, uh, hundreds, if not, we don't really know, if not a couple of thousands of people detained under um, uh, what uh, the state has a very, well, not state, is now a union territory, has very draconian uh, preventive detention law under which you can be locked up for two years um, without bail or access to a lawyer. There are uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people who have been locked up. They have been distributed to jails across India. And uh, if you read the Indian papers, for example, this is not an issue at all. And it does, doesn't occur because it's just not reported. It's simple as that. Uh, all these things have been completely scrubbed. Uh, and there is no democracy as we know that exists, as we know it, that exists in, in uh, Kashmir anymore. Um, and as Manisha said, um, uh, Manipur is another stark example, a state, where the st uh, a state where the state has collapsed, the government has collapsed, and uh, um, the ethnic cleansing has been evident. Uh, there are armed gangs roaming around, there are gun battles every night virtually. Uh, but none of this is making it to the uh, mainstream media. If you switch on the television, None of this is there. Um, uh, is, none of this is evident. 
So there's, uh, there's just a few examples, but there are lots like this uh, that just don't get covered. The one question that I had for you, and I think it could be hard to uh, choose, you know, but what would be the most alarming incident with regards to media freedom or just in general journalism and uh, what journalists and journalism has been facing in India? Like what would be the most alarming in the recent past, according to you? Like something that really like was shocking from all of, all of the things that we've discussed. To me, it's been the imprisonment, the arrest and imprisonment of uh, Fahad Shah, who was the editor of the Kashmir Wala, which was the last independent website in Kashmir. Um, he he had had some cases against him, etc. He had been detained often on the roadside detentions, etc. But he's always let free. And then one day he was arrested. There were uh, multiple uh, cases filed against him. He got bail in all those cases, uh, at least on three occasions, if I remember right. And finally, um, uh, but the government simply would not release him. And finally, they arrested him under this preventive detention law and just bunged him into uh, jail. Um, uh, he was been in jail for more than two years. And finally, when it went to the Jammu and Kashmir High Court, the High Court said what other courts had been saying, that there is no case, there is no criminality, there is nothing. He has to be free. And he was set free. But in the time that he was there, the government then arbitrarily shut down his website, which was limping along, uh, was arbitrarily shut down. There was nothing. It was just shut down. Um, there was, it was blocked entirely. Uh, and that, I think, is a template for what can easily happen uh, to the rest of the media in India. We always think that, oh, this has happened in Kashmir, that's different. But it's not, because we're seeing elements of that so-called Kashmir model have now trickled down into the uh, mainstream Indian polity. Um, and uh, to me, that has, was clearly the most shocking uh, example. We spoke to him after he came out. He's, uh, well, quite a broken man, and I don't think he's going to get back to journalism in a hurry. No, I remember reading that uh, interview and it was very heartbreaking. I think he, the things he had to say or things he said I would not talk about at all. Yeah, Manisha, do you have anything? Like something that really... So I watch so many shocking things every day. That... Okay, I think two things to me I still marvel at, even though I'm so used to it now, is one, this complete craven acceptance by mainstream journalists that you have a prime minister who will not give press conferences. It's been 10 years. We have accepted it. It's lauded. It's seen as this masterstroke strategy that he doesn't even talk to the press. It's some kind of a macho thing to do. It's really pathetic that the largest democracy in the world has accepted this. I think the younger generation, if you talk to some of the new reporters who come into the newsroom, they're shocked when they see previous press conferences. Like, oh, this used to happen. Like, could you know, because I showed them recently of Manmohan Singh's last press conference from 10 years ago. And they were like, really? This this used to happen? So that complete wiping off and people sharing it. And, you know, it's not about, okay, you could be a critic of the government. You could even, I'm saying, you know, be pro-government. Okay, you've taken a side. But the levels of sycophancy that you witness every day on television news, uh, say G20, for example, is one thing to host it well to come out with a statement, you know, big win for Indian diplomacy, but quite another to portray this as this big victory. You know, if you talk to most Indians today, they'll think that G20 came to India because of Modi, that Modi is the reason why G20 happened in India. There'll be no understanding that's a rotating presidency. You would have had it irrespective of whoever the prime minister was. Just complete glorification day in and day out of... I mean, I think it's almost uh, like he's at that mythical cult level if you watch news. And if that's what you consume, it's not even a politician anymore. It's just about politics. I think the stature of media, and that's primarily because of the way the media has been able to do it. Uh, the second thing that appalls me is to witness this um, you know, concentrated hate being spitted out every night across television news channels. This, you know, we have a situation where a crime occurs and you have anchors jumping to see what the religion of the accused is. So if it's a rape case and if it's a Muslim man, they jump on it and forget the countless cases. Just to point out that, you know, how Muslims are bad and they're dangerous and they what they do to your women. And, you know, other cases would be completely. So women's safety is only an issue when there's a criminal who's Muslim. So that kind of concentrated targeting of minorities is very scary. It's appalling to watch it on a day in and day out basis. And it's very scary to think of the ramifications. You're going to create a population that's going to be completely immune to injustices, already is very immune to injustices being meted out on minorities. So that, 
very very appalling to watch so what do you think like uh, ahead of the elections what is the mood like like what are you what are your expectations i think this few months next few months are going to be even more busy and i don't know what it has in store yeah well, we're all geared up we're going to be hitting the ground we uh, during the elections we put a lot of emphasis on ground reporting um so yeah we're excited about that i think that look um it's i don't think it's productive to get you know too cynical or depressed about what's happening yeah it's hard i think it's harder for journalists than ever before but i think hard times also make you innovate make you think about how you can communicate with your audience in a different way make you think about how you can reach out to people uh, through your journalism so in a newsroom you know that has the ability that's multimedia that can use different mediums it's also exciting times to just think of how you can reinvent yourself you know in the current times so i'm 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 still quite optimistic despite everything all the bleak the bleak picture that we've given you over the past one i agree with that optimism uh, is i'm very optimistic as well uh, one reason for that is because we work with uh, this uh, um uh, with a whole lot of uh, Uh, fine young reporters who are very idealistic who earn a fraction of the money we used to earn actually when we were at at their stage of the careers uh, and it's just exhilarating and heartwarming and rewarding to work with uh, with people like that uh, and as as long as they are doing the hard work out there we must provide uh, you know the um, uh, overall support structure that we can to all of them so whatever happens we are not going to do the best we can and we are definitely not going to go quietly into the night This has been the lead by New Lines magazine. I want to thank our guests Manisha Pandey and Samar Halankar for joining us. You can find Manisha on X at Mansha Pandey and Samar at Samar11. This week's episode was produced by Finba Anderson and hosted by me Surbhi Gupta. For more like this, subscribe to the lead on your favorite podcast app and visit our website newlinesmag.com. Please rate us in your favorite podcast app. It really helps us grow a bigger audience. See you next week.